Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Kind Mind Podcast. I'm Todd. Today we have a special dialogue, and I've invited a special guest. His name is Dr. Mark Hatala, who is a cognitive scientist and a professor at Truman State University, where he's taught since 1994. He has a bachelor's in psychology and history from Miami University of Ohio, and earned both his master's and doctorate in experimental psychology from Ohio University. And he has a long resume of occupations that are fun and diverse, including a machinist, opera usher, entrepreneur, bus driver, DJ, mall Santa, publisher, fry cook, my favorite lead singer in a punk band. Absolutely. I can relate to that one. Researcher, financial planner, baseball umpire. But Dr. Hatala also has a book called uh, Retro Causality and Psychology, or Psychology and Retro Causality, rather. And uh, that's one of the reasons why I invited him on the show today. That's the, probably the theme we'll get into the most into this conversation. So welcome to the podcast. Thank you for taking time today. It's good to have you here. Absolutely, Todd. I'm happy to be here. So to begin, can you help the audience understand what the term retrocausality means and maybe how you explain your interest in that concept. Absolutely. We tend to live in a causal universe. And so that's the way we think about things. And so philosophers of science refer to this as essentially paradigms or ways of thinking about the world. And so we think that the past is what determines the present and the future. And we see this in psychology, too, because people like Freud believed that the best predictor of like um, all neuroses he believed were caused by ch uh, childhood trauma, if you will. And initially he thought it was child sexual trauma. And then he realized that basically all kids go through like Oedipal conflict or uh, Electra, although that's from um, Carl Jung, who was a student of his. But the point being that it's the past that determines the present and future. Or another example from psychology, because that's my background, is somebody like B.F. Skinner, who's the, the founder of the idea of operant conditioning. He says behavior is controlled by its consequences. And so you do something, and if it, if it turns out good, then you do it more. If it turns out bad, you stop doing it. What psychology is very poor at explaining are things like uh, that we call phenomenological change. So uh, an example is a guy named Malcolm Little, who was literally a thief, a pimp, and drug dealer. And he goes to prison. He finds God, in this case, Allah. And he comes out and he never commits another crime. And he becomes a civil rights leader, who we know as Malcolm X. So what psychology would say is, uh, and this is what the whole idea behind behaviorism, which was the dominant school in psychology for over 50 years, is that the best predictor of people's future behaviors, their past behavior. But that doesn't seem to be true for uh, if people are, and this is what interventions are all about too, is that people can change, um, and that's what's called a phenomenological change, where they see their life differently. What retrocausality is about is essentially, um, it, it's a term that comes from physics, but I think it applies to psychology and philosophy and living. But yeah. it's that uh, rather than seeing it as a life as essentially determined by the past, that it's also the future that determines the present um, in important ways. And we can talk about some. Of those. Yeah. And so what evidence 
has convinced you or is convincing or intriguing to you or what experiments stand out to you that test retrocausality and how can we test retrocausality? Well, it, there's a lot of charlatanism in it. So yeah. because a lot of people who, um, oh, like pre, well, precognition, I'm not saying a charlatanism, but there's, um, oh, for a long time, there were like channelers. If you yeah. remember those people who were like, they could be from the future and then they tell you what you should be doing. Sure. Um, but as far as scientific studies, probably the most famous is a guy named Daryl Bem, who um, he's a social psychologist at Cornell. Yeah. yeah. And um, he, he, he came up with a lot of different theories of uh, now I'm blanking on it, social something or another. It doesn't matter. But about a decade ago, he published an article called Feeling the Future, which was it was nine different studies of retrocausality. And it's, it's important to keep in mind here, too. People aren't like seeing into some um, like general future. What, what the argument is, what they're doing is they're remembering something that's happening in the future. And so uh, I don't know if you'd like me to talk about some of his studies. Or- I would because they're, they're really fascinating. But before you do, I think that there is a ontological problem with feeling in the future because now that raises the question, what is the future? I, sure. Would you would you interpret retrocausality as future is more like a phenomenon of a block universe, as maybe hinted at by Einstein? So it it's actually existing already. I don't believe in a block universe because uh-huh. a block universe is unchangeable. And I I think what Einstein would say is that, and, and he did say this. Um, I can't remember the physicist who died. And he wrote his wife a letter, and he said that physicists know that um, things like ideas of past, present, and future, that that's just a, a stubbornly persistent illusion, that yeah. really it's all the same thing. And mm-hmm. I think I, that is what I believe. So, because the idea of a block universe is that, um, just to explain that in case uh, your listeners don't know what that is is that essentially you could think of it in terms of like coordinates in time that right now we're, I'm, I'm sitting in my house, you're sitting in your house and time is the fourth dimension of that. And so because we're doing this right now, that that is like sealed in time, that this is the, the, um, uh, the superposition that I'm in right now where I'm sitting here talking to you and that that's unchangeable. I, I don't think, I don't know that that's true. Well then, well, okay, let's go into maybe one of the experiments that stands out sure. to you. Absolutely. So I think the easiest to understand is a, a very simple task because it's it's one that we run in cognitive psychology all the time, where you have a list of to be remembered words. Okay. So he gives them, he gives um, this is students, he gives them 48 different words, and then they do a uh, free recall of those. And the words fall in four different categories. So there's occupations, foods, um, animals, and I think clothing or something like that. Mm-hmm. Then uh, he gives uh, 24 of those words a second time. Okay, so after they've done the free recall. And um, they have to classify the words. And so, and I, I guess I should say too, like, so when... Um, so if the word is cow, when they when they originally get the word, they're told to create a visual image of it. 
And so like a cow eating grass or a cow getting milked or something along those lines. Then they do the classification test. So you have to, you get uh, half of those words a second time that were on the original to be remembered list. So you get 24 words um, the second time and you have to classify them. Is that a piece of clothing? Is that an animal or whatever it is? What he finds is that the words that are on the second list are better recalled earlier in time. And so that's a retrocausal priming effect that um, people, for whatever reason, are able to remember those words better. And so, um, yeah. And so that would be an example. Yeah. And then there's another one that I think there's two curtains where students need to pick which one is hiding an image. Right. And so, yeah, that, that's actually the first study that he does. The, the study that I just explained is, is what's called the, the White Queen study, because it's mm-hmm. uh, a lot of, I have a friend who's like, he says, once you get into Lewis Carroll, then you've lost me. But there's a line from um, Alice Through the Looking Glass where um, she's talking to the White Queen and the White Queen says that it's all about thinking backwards. And uh, because um, Alice says, well, my, my memory only runs one way. I can only remember things that <laughs> happened already. And uh, the queen says, well, that's not a very good system that only runs backwards. Um, <laughs> the study that you're talking about is, um, so, so here's the idea. I used to teach evolutionary psychology also, which I don't teach anymore um, for various reasons. But it is in our interest as animals, if you will, to mm-hmm. recognize sexual situations. And so um, just for purposes of procreation, et cetera. So what he does is there's, there's two curtains and there's either an erotic photo or like, so people having sex and they, they pretest the people for what they like. So they get to see things that they like. So man, man, woman, woman, man, woman, whatever they're into. So there's no heteronormative bias to the study. And then there's also people just holding hands, okay? So they have, to, they have to decide which curtain is likely to have a picture. And what he finds is that people are much more likely, uh, it's only 53%, so it's not a massive effect, but uh, people are more likely to identify erotic photos than um, uh, non-erotic photos, which are just- And that makes sense because it has meaning from an evolutionary standpoint. Exactly. Um, that was his, that's his point. And yeah. they did a whole bunch of- um, What's the word I want? Uh, ways to control for things like precog or um, not precognition um, um, for like telekinesis that the people weren't like determining where it was appearing um, on the screen. And so mm-hmm. they, they did try to take ways to make sure that that it was actually a retrocausal effect to, to rule out other types of psi phenomena. Thank you, Todd. That's a, that's a better yeah. way to put it. <laughs> no, uh, but, but yeah. But I'm curious that. That 53%, okay, it's not too statistically significant, but it is enough to override chance. Absolutely. And, and the, the, so my main issue with his yeah. research is that he's just testing undergraduates who don't, who don't care. You know, they're just doing it for yeah. extra credit or something. And so if retrocausal sensitivity is something that's normally distributed, like every other characteristic in humanity from height to weight to intelligence or anything else you want to Or talk. even memory, right? Because memory. some people have good memories. So if, if memory, like in Alice's 
uh, analogy or story could go both ways. Some people are good at remembering past. I'm not very good at remembering things. <laughs> so yeah, I see what you're yeah. saying that he's just sampling. It would be, it would be so interesting to take those who are actually seemingly sensitive to retrocausal um, influence. Exactly. Influence. And, right. and so that's actually, I have, I have another colleague and that's what we're trying to develop tests too. Oh, good. That's exciting. That's, yeah. And then finding those people and creating a community of people who are retrocausally sensitive and then see where we can go with that. Well, I definitely want to stay in touch with you on that. And that could be also influencing our conversation. <laughs> That's 100% right. That's exactly right. <laughs> now, why do you think, though, that um, the scientific community and the psychological community doesn't take that too seriously? Or why does it upset them? To just go back to BEM for a second, you would think that the that these are important findings. And um, right. so, so he published in the Journal of Personality and Social Psychology, which is an absolute top tier journal. OK, totally legitimate, yeah. completely. And so um, just to put it in context for you, too. There was something called the replication crisis in psychology where they tried to rerun a bunch of um, studies um, and journal personality and social psychology was one of the three journals that they that they reran the studies on. They reran a hundred studies um, to see if they could still get the same levels of. Who was doing this? Just an independent group. It was, of- it was a group of researchers. I can't remember the name of the the person who had it who headed okay. it, but um, they did that. They did um, journal of experimental psychology, memory and cognition, and psychological science. And what they found was, um, uh, and I, I assure you, I, I'm not trying to just talk in a circle here, that the findings in social psychology were essentially the weakest. They were only able to replicate 20, I think it's 21 or 26% of those studies. And the ones from cognitive psychology, like memory and learning and that sort of th- thing was over half. And then they, in 2018, they did another series of studies with articles from because um, nature has a behavioral science version and science, and they found a 61% replication rate. But um, BEM's, BEM followed this up with um, other articles about it being re- his, his findings being replicated. And I, I wanted to say this too, that the editors of JPSP, before they published his Feeling the Future research, they put up a um, essentially a disclaimer saying, look, we know that this is going to be controversial research, but mm-hmm. we've gone over all of his statistics, all of his methodology, and we feel that this is important and should be published. But nobody does research on it. Um, well, nobody, few people with like university affiliations do because the blowback is, is too great. And so it's unfortunate, the, though. It really is. And so uh, it's, I think we, we think of, of like tenured professors, the whole idea behind tenure is being able to pursue anything you're interested in. But really, there's a very narrow um, range of things that you can study. Uh, my advisor in graduate school used to say, uh, we never solve any problems. We just move on to different ones. And I think there's a lot of truth to that. Hmm. Another concern that, that arises for me with BEM studies, let's say it does meet the criteria of uh, some kind of psi phenomena is the explanation where you have a paradox then because it retroactively demonstrates that the very protocols 
required for scientific study are inadequate because now you have blurred the boundary between what are classical notions of the constraints of interaction in space and time are, right? Which means you couldn't, then then you could not prove that psi phenomena exists or something like retro causality exists, which then leaves you with um, this infinite loop Right. And, and then the result is just let's keep the scientific protocols as they are and avoid. And, and let's not study this other and thing. Let's just not st- study this. No, you're 100 percent right about that. And that's the ridiculousness of it. And so that's why uh, just to bring up some other things like the, the, the area with the absolute most proof for it are things like precognitive dreams and things like end of life dreams and visions, which are different from deathbed type experiences. There's tons of, of data on this, but it really doesn't fit in a theoretical construct. And it, it absolutely doesn't fit in. I mean, psi is such a general term that right. in some ways I, I find it to be. Um, that's why I, I prefer the term retrocausality, because it's describing a very specific um, phenomenon rather than because psi is everything from like, you know, uh, precognition to telekinesis, yeah. to prophecy to you name it. And so, but the, but the main point, though, in that is there's still a violation of our classical notions, absolutely. right? And uh, yeah. that would that would challenge the paradigm of scientific protocols, which is important to know. I mean, so there are further implications of like the Ben. I, I couldn't agree more, and and you're absolutely right. So the 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 criticisms of his research, people said that it essentially violated like the way the universe works, which is, I mean, they're they're starting from a point. And then if something doesn't fit what they already, what already is a part of their paradigm and what they believe is possible, then it can't actually happen. And that's a way for them to dismiss the findings. Exactly. And, and then unfortunately we just don't probe further to, to actually try to understand, well, what is, what is the nature of the universe? What is the nature of consciousness? Some possibilities that come to my mind would be maybe consciousness is, or the way that we think about consciousness, already a mystery, whether it's an emergent property or if it's more embedded into the space-time fabric. But maybe consciousness is an illusion, and therefore we have abstractions like past and future arising. Absolutely. Right, because it... But that would be worth knowing if that's the direction to go next, you know. So, so I, I don't teach our class in consciousness. Another colleague does, but it's it's. I, I teach cognitive science, though, and so consciousness is a part of that too. Right. So Marvin Minsky, who's a, a pretty famous uh, cognitive or um, a computer scientist and AI researcher, he says it, consciousness is nothing but short-term memory. So what what Freud would refer to as the preconscious. So anything that you can think of is essentially what consciousness is. And then other people would argue that basically what consciousness consciousness is, is a narrative about what, like what's Todd doing? So I don't know what Todd had for lunch, but it's like, well, why am I eating this? Well, I, this must be something I enjoy. And I've got a meeting, a Zoom meeting with Mark at this time, et cetera, et cetera. And so it's a running narrative mm-hmm. of what's called the zombie problem. Yeah, it's it's absolutely a mystery because things like sleep are a mystery. Um, 
yeah. So I don't know how far right. sleep itself is a paradox because on the one hand we're paralyzed and yet the brain is as active as it can, it will ever it be. Is when it's, then it's when it's awake. Exactly. Right. And so, uh, you know, so f- for example, I, I don't mean to keep on going back to Freud, but I think Freud's an important philosopher of the mind. So he sees dreaming as essentially wish fulfillment where there's always part of our, our what's ever happening for that day, that that's always part of it. And then um, again, there's both the, the manifest content, which is what the, the storyline of the dream, and then what the dream is actually about, the, the latent content, the, the underlying aspects of it. But there's a lot of, there's other theories on dream interpretation too. And even within the psychoanalytic commu- community, there's differences between um, like Freud and Carl Jung, uh-huh. So falling is a very common experience in dreams. And Freud interprets that as um, it's a fear of losing control. And um, because when you're falling, you can't have any effect over except for how you land, I guess. <laughs> um, whereas someone like Carl Jung interpreted that as a proof of, of a collective unconscious, because when humans lived in trees, then falling was a very like upsetting and dangerous thing because you'd fall from a tree to the ground, something either breaks something or something eats you. And so even within the psychoanalytic community, they can't agree on what dreams mean. So, well, um, collective unconscious. Well, I think both of those psychologists made an important shift in the way that we think of ourselves. And that is there's a lot happening underneath the surface and maybe the tip of the iceberg is what we consider to be conscious or as you described, short-term right. recall. And that's that has massive implications. Now, I think most people, well, the collective unconsciousness, I think that along with maybe something like Aldous Huxley described when on Mescaline, mind at large, could also maybe be possible ways to explain what feels like remote viewing, not remote viewing in the sense of psychic, but that we're not using the five senses in the traditional yeah. manner. And that, I do like how, how Bam uses feeling the future because uh-huh. as, as the explanation, because it's like, it's, it's not the standard kind of epistemology. I think most people though can relate to precognitive dreams. If you ask almost anybody I've ever asked about this, they can recall at least one significant experience with a precognitive dream. It happens all the time in my family. I would say my dad would be a good candidate for your studies. <laughs> he He's often telling me about things before they happen from dream. And since we just had the anniversary of 9-11, yeah. um, my dad, in the days, maybe a week or so leading up to the tragedy, was having grief, uh, sad, like intense sadness and grief. And, and he described it to me at the time. I'm like, what's going on? You, you okay? He's like, it's just the feeling you get when there is such a terrible tragedy. And then when it happened, it was, it made sense retrocausally that he was feeling yeah. the future as Ben described. He's also had dreams like Mark Twain's dream about his, his brother and the, all the nine. details ahead of time. My father's had that too, with his, with his own grandfather, just days and in advance or hours in advance. If your listeners aren't familiar with it, wasn't it he dreamed that his brother would die in a steamboat explosion or something? Yes. Like that? And then that and he is- got the details of the funeral down to the type of casket, which was metal. Some unusual details were there. 
right. and white flowers with one red rose in the center. Yeah. And, and, so, and, and there's a lot of this. documentation on this too. So there, I think your name's Elizabeth Crone. So I don't know why so much of this has to do with plane crashes, but they do. She had a, a dream where a bunch of people were out on the wing of a plane and she said it wasn't like United and it wasn't American. It wasn't like a major carrier. And then it was it was the um, when Sully landed the plane in the Hudson. Okay. And then she had another dream, too, where she actually sent herself an email. So it would be time stamped. Um, she thought it was going to be an Asian airliner and it was going to be um, that it was a prop plane and that the wing ended up in front of it. And but there were no casualties. And with six hours later, that exact same thing happened. And so the the track record of this is absolutely incredible. But again, nobody does research on it because it really doesn't fit within any kind of theoretical framework. So then what other possibilities could there be? Do you think there's something immaterial happening? I think what's 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 happening is because people, I don't think people are seeing a generalized future. And so this goes back to, if uh, if you're familiar with the term, what's called a done dream. This is the guy he wrote in the 1920s about studies with time where he'd had precognitive dreams. And uh, what people remember are false details, which they, which appear in the paper, okay? And so what that argues strongly for is people aren't remember or people aren't seeing into the future to see uh, what's going to happen. What they're actually doing is they're remembering what they read in the future and which is sometimes wrong. And so I think that gives more credence to it because yes. the details are they're getting the details wrong. But that's what people initially believe happened. And his his th- those done dreams are about things like volcanic eruptions um, but there's also plane crashes and that sort of thing, too. In your book, you talk about how this may determine love. Do you mind sharing some examples? So I, I teach romantic relationships, too. And um, it goes to the idea. It explains what love at first sight is. And so I don't know how much how much detail you'd like me to go into on, on what love at first sight is, because they do do research on that, too. It's primarily it's men who experience love at first sight because um, they think it's based on attraction. And so it's an instantaneous and physical feeling. attractiveness is is more of a trait wired into men than to women. Right. And there's so, trust uh, and other a lot of other factors that go into. She's pretty. So that she must be a good person. That right. sort of thing. Um, but uh, it, it's interesting because it's not a shared experience. And so uh, a lot of times um, one person will feel it um, rather than, than both. But the, the retrocausal explanation for it is that essentially when you meet this person, you're remembering an entire future that you have together. And it just seems like so the, the character is remembering it on a visceral level. So feeling, feeling yeah. even if and it's so, not clear, even if you don't have the conscious details of the future. You know that this person is significant and important and likely to yeah. be up for the rest of your life. And so, yeah. And, and so it gets into this, this, like I was saying earlier, too. You're, what you're remembering is um, a future that actually occurs. And so, um, yeah, the example I used in my book is my brother, who 
proposed to his wife in kindergarten. He knew that he that that was the person that he was supposed to be with. Um, they didn't get married in kindergarten, just to be clear. Um, uh, <laughs> but they reconnected. He, she moved away in fifth grade. Um, she turned him down. She said he was a stink pot. Her words, not mine. And then they saw each other on a bus when they were 18, and they've been together ever since. So he knew that they were supposed to be together. Um, yeah. And th- it's not like this is some modern phenomena. So the ancients had ideas about things like Cupid, where you just get hit by an arrow and you instantly fall in love with that person. And there's uh, there's um, examples from the Bible, too, where um, I can't remember exactly who it is, but the woman hops off the candle, camel, Leah, and um, I think it was Jacob who okay. said that's the woman's yes. name. I can tell you a story if you, if Please. you don't mind about this. I have a friend about maybe 12, 13 years ago, we were hanging out and we heard a song on the radio that was pretty popular at the time. And she makes it a point to say how much this music impacts her. Not even so much that she likes the music, just that when she hears it, she feels as though she's at home. Uh-huh. And and she would just always do that anytime it came up or if I mentioned it or, or it was on the TV or something like that. And eventually she decided to go to a concert of the, this artist because she just felt so magnetically drawn to it. And at the time, the band was performing at major fests. Their concerts were attended by like 50 to 100,000 people. And she was in one of these said concerts. And as soon as the lead singer saw her, it was love at first sight for him. She was already feeling like magnetically drawn to him and to the music. And he stopped. I talked to him later on and he said, Uh you know, in that moment, the world stopped. Basically how people describe love at first sight. It's as if you you could be in a room of a crowded room of people, but the, the person's eyes who you're in love with and their face kind of shines out as separate, distinct from everyone else. Right. And he said he was had to debate whether or not to just stop performing and make sure he could go meet her. But then he said, you know, he collected himself, composed himself. I have to fulfill my obligation here. And then he proceeded to pursue her through the town and the venue afterwards, after they finished the concert, couldn't find her, made a post on social media um, looking for her. Uh-huh. She had a flag uh, that she made for the band. And so he wrote something about that. There was somebody with this uh, poster flag and she re- responded and um, and they got together and had a family. So that's amazing. Yeah. That Especially is. when you can consider all of the people that he was interacting with that year. I mean, thousands, maybe millions. Yeah. And and she knew and he knew the very first time he saw her in a ma- massive crowd. That was in a, an example of where I was like, I have I have to really think about this. It got me starting to approach life retrocausally, mm-hmm. uh, meaning there's a lot we can accept about ourselves when we consider what we don't know right now about our future, feelings that we have, insecurities that we have, especially when they seem totally irrational. It's one thing when we have symptoms of like PTSD after trauma. Sure. It's another thing when there might be some irrational fears or concerns and we can't connect it to anything in the past. Maybe mm-hmm. there's something wired into our DNA from our ancestors, but maybe it says something also about what's going to happen. I agree. hundred percent. 
Well, I, I want to go back just one last time to the 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 love at first sight. Yes, yeah, please. They're hearing about that is one of the other things they find, and that's why I, I'd be curious if this happened with your friend too. Is that um, it, there's a level of familiarity with that person where it's not like you're meeting them for the first time. It's like being reunited with that person, yeah. and it's it's more like a friend that you haven't talked to in a long time than it is like you're meeting a stranger and that you want to know everything about them. And so it sounds like that's precisely what happened uh, to your friend. That may also be true even in other types of loving connections. Like I I can think of friends that became great friends. And if I recall our first meeting, there was something familiar. It was like meeting an old friend. So I think, yeah, this seems to play out when there's meaningful connections of any kind. This, This just reminded me of another love story. I had a colleague uh, at a hospital that I work at that would look at a photograph that was just the the art that um, that the employer put in the room of a it was a photographic image of Lake Louise, which I think is in Banff, Alberta, Canada. Uh-huh. She didn't know where that was. I didn't know where it was. It was just a beautiful photo of the lake. And she would just stand there sometimes and look at it for extended periods of time. And I'm like, you really really like that image. Maybe you can visit that place someday. She's like, I don't know. It's just when I see it, I feel something familiar. And one day her boyfriend planned um, a surprise trip for them. He told her, you know, we need to take these few days off. Actually, he didn't even tell her that. He arranged with our employer for her to have that time off. Just picked her up one day, bags packed and said, you know, I'd like to to take a trip with you. And she's like, well, I got to work. He's like, no, it's all all taken care of and everything. (laughs) The surprise destination was Banff. He proposed to her at Lake Louise. And when it all unfolded, it was like, this is why I was retro causally. She understood why she would always look at the photograph of Lake Louise, because in the future, she was going to be having a very one, one of the most life changing experiences. So, yeah. And yet no one, this is, this is a, uh, a common, I mean, it's not common, but we can both come up with multiple different. Right. But some episode is pretty common, at least, you know, one story people can probably recall. Right. And, and yet we don't study these things and it's, um, it's just written off as coincidence. And it just seems like coincidence can't, cannot explain some of these. I think if they were, if it was more vague or something, but thank God you're a tenured professor. (laughs) (laughs) No. Well, yeah. I mean, most of of my published research is in, because my background's in decision-making and memory. And so that's, that's essentially, that's not really essentially how I got into this, but um, yeah. So all my, all my research that got me tenure is incredibly boring. So it's about like, it's about essentially about mate selection, but that's why I'm, I'm interested in from that perspective. Um, if you want to talk about learning or intelligence or any of those other, yeah. And I'll tell you once another quick story about learning and then segue into, into your uh, take on it. When I was an undergraduate, I shifted after my first year from the school of business to, to psychology, to the college of arts and sciences. And I picked the hardest class because it was with a visiting professor, Dr. Prebrum, who was old. He was maybe near 80 years old at the time he was visiting. He was a renowned neurosurgeon. 
But the course was like a 900 level cognitive science course. And this was going to be my first class in psychology. But I think I was feeling something from the future. And I remember going into the seminar on the first day and I sat down feeling a little intimidated. I was seeing older students going and maybe even a few clinicians from the community. So I got intimidated. I sat down. I opened one of his books, uh, Brain and Perception. And I just read one sentence, jumped off the page. I read that and decided I don't want to read anything else. It said, the neuron is the basic unit of computation in the brain. I closed the book. I went in. And then Dr. Prebrum came up to me and he said, if you're Todd, uh, I have to resolve an issue with you. Back then, this was late 90s. We registered for classes analog style. We mailed uh-huh. something in. Or, and so I maybe was able to slip through the cracks, not meeting prerequisites. But he said, you know, you don't have the prerequisites. You don't have Psych 101 or a biology course. So he's like, I just don't think this is going to be worth it for you. And I said, well, that may be, but I'm not really interested in the grade. You're a visiting professor. Right. You have knowledge. Maybe I won't understand it today, but I think it will be a valuable experience for me. He liked that, but he still had this problem with the registrar. So he stepped back for a moment, started scratching his long white beard, and then a light bulb went off in his face and he stepped forward and he said, I'll tell you what, if you can tell me the definition of a neuron, <laughs> I'll let you take this course. I'll, I'll, I'll make the case for you with the university. And so I like puffed my chest up and tell the only thing I know about the brain at the time. <laughs> but this was a case now looking back of, you know, of a, of a more immediate retrocausal phenomenon because I needed it to happen. And at the same time, well, that, that sentence jumped off the page because a few moments later, he was going to be asking me about that. Now I was just looking at pages and why the other things didn't resonate with me. It's, it would, you know, it's, it's impossible to explain by mere coincidence, I feel. So, well, I could give you the something else that, that they look at, because again, these aren't necessarily life or death experiences. Right. There's a lot of examples for people who've been in combat where they feel like they don't like the position they're in. So they move and then something blows up right where they just were. So again, it's not the life or death that, that you're talking. I mean, you're not talking about a life or death situation, but there's innumerable um, uh, wartime examples of things. Oh, that's like interesting. That. And so uh, the, the counter to that, though, is we don't hear from the people who moved to a new position and then got blown up either. And so who made the wrong choice. But um, there definitely seems to be this, if you believe in but at the same time, let me just add one thing there before you continue, that if we needed to remember something from the past and it was life or death, our memories still may fail us. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. So. No, I was just going to say that that we seem to be wired um, for this, uh, this, this um, essentially remembering a future um, where you're alive, if you will. And mm. so um, this it's. It's just issues between with past and future, because one of the things I wrote about, too, is um, things like depression, where it, we used to believe that depression is caused by essentially, like I said earlier, with Freud, bad things happening in the past, and that determines um, depression now. And Martin, Martin Seligman, who's a he's uh, he's he's been president of the American Psychological Association, he's a huge researcher. Um, they, he's part of this, this, um, this homo prospectus movement now is that, uh, people seem to be much more oriented towards the future. And so like when they ping people during the day, 
um, they're not thinking about the past. They're thinking about the future. And so, um, yeah, the way retrocausal. Three times more likely, I think. you I think Three you times more speak. likely to be thinking about that's the future and making plans for the future. So that's why in things like positive psychology, it's, it's a, instead of looking at it from a medical model of there's something wrong and we need to fix it, it looks at like what makes people happy and then how can other people live their lives that way. And so it's things like having a planner, making the future seem knowable is really important for people. Yeah, I'm not sure exactly where I was going with that. Um, but that's, there's- well, there's some- Coming back to depression, um, okay. in like Beck's cognitive triad of depression, you have negative feelings about oneself, the world, and then most importantly for, for the retrocausal explanation, the future. Sure. And as you're saying, you know, we, we classically think of depression as more of a rumination about the past. Right. That's 100% correct. And, However, and we're more likely to ruminate than men are. And so that's been used as an, uh, um, an explanation for why women are more likely to be um, diagnosed okay. with clinical depression. And so if there's a real negative event in the future, I mean, there are negative events in the future that are inevitable, dying, loss, and... I don't know if it was you who said it in your book, but but it requires a certain amount of self-deception de- to have that's, only that's positive sentiments about the future, to be only optimistic. That Well, mental health is having an unrealistic and optimistic view of how the world is going to go. <laughs> um, so no, what, what Seligman calls it, um, because people who are depressed have very negative views about how they think the future is going to go. Correct. So it's it's dysfunctional perspective is 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 the technical term for it that they they think that like so I for example I'm, I I have students who are giving presentations and they're always thinking about how awful it's going to be you know and and they're going to say something wrong and everybody's going to laugh or who knows what but public speaking is a huge issue for a lot of people but what depressed people do is are, are people who are, are are clinically depressed is all they see are the negative outcomes and they don't feel that there's anything they can do about it. And so that leads to a sense of helplessness, but it's um, two other researchers uh, there. I'm, I'm forgetting, I'm blanking on their names too, but they came up with the idea of what's called depressive realism in the 1970s that says that, it, and, and there's a lot of proof for this too, that depressed people are actually much more in tune with reality um, that the rest of us essentially have a, a bright and cheery view of what's happening and what's going to happen in the future. I've noticed that too, especially when I work with adolescents in psychiatric care in conversations, more detailed conversations, you can really walk away feeling like they just have a much more accurate view of reality and they're feeling that. And the empathy for some of those truths is heavy. Of course. And, And what you're, what sometimes I feel we're asking of them is to neglect or overlook or deceive oneself, you know, as you put it. So I guess this really raises questions about what would be a better uh, intervention for something like depression. I think taking into account those real sentiments about the future, but understanding maybe maybe that happiness is overrated. And there, there can be, let's take a funeral, for instance. People probably aren't happy, but that doesn't mean everybody is miserable either. There could be humor happening. There could be gratitude. There could be a lot of other things. So there may be ways 
more realistic ways to reframe cognition for, uh, for clients and for patients with depression taking into account those realities of the future? Well, if not, this isn't to change the subject. I assure you this is on the same thing. Okay. Is, is psych, psychology changes every 30 years. So what we believe to be true, um, it's, it's constantly changing. And so um, there's a psychological joke about this, um, if, if I can share it. Yeah, um, I'll make it about me, but it could be anybody because I've been teaching for at the college level for 33 years now. Is um, father comes up, uh, who's a former student, and he says, you know, my daughter is uh, in your in your class. And I looked over her test and I see that you're still asking the exact same questions. And I respond, yeah, but now all the answers are different. <laughs> that psychology is, it, it constantly changes. And so you had mentioned PTSD earlier and there was a big movement probably within, within the last decade. Cause I'm, I'm really into to VR and um, as a therapeutic technique but with um, veterans where they would essentially relive their uh, trauma and get control of it. And that was a way of, of coping and a therapeutic technique that they were, they were trying out. Now they believe that's actually uh, a very poor way to do it because what it does is it's natural forgetting. So back in the civil war, it was just like, forget about the bad times that occurred and that through natural forgetting, you're not reliving it and you're not having intrusive thoughts about it. Mm -hmm. Because, um, and I know I'm getting way far afield, I'm sorry, this, is, this, this all ties together in my own mind, but perhaps not um, in discussing it, is um, going back to Freud again, where he believed that things, that memories were repressed. But um, Elizabeth Loftus, who uh, studies things like eyewitness testimony, studying children who've like seen their parents killed or raped in front of them, the problem isn't they, that they repress that information. The problem is that it's intrusive, that they, they think about it all the time. And so um, it's, it's, I guess my point being, we're always changing both therapeutic techniques and psychology and the way we conceive of what the problems are. Thank you for clarifying that. And so maybe we can shift and, uh, and head towards a conclusion with how to maybe tap into this or what have you learned from your research that could be helpful on a day-to-day -day level for people? Well, wow, that's, that's really a good question. And that's what I'm trying to, <laughs> that's okay. what I'm trying to figure out. So what, the, what I do with, um, so I write two kinds of books, okay? I write books on writing, which sell very well. That's essentially how I make my living. I just bank my, my academic salary and I live off my writing. And I write books on time travel, which don't sell at all. Because the, the way, then this is how I came to retrocausality. One of the things that we talk about in psychology, so there's, there's a, a psychological test that you can take. Um, you can't take it online. It's the Minnesota Multiphasic Personality Inventory, the MMPI. Okay, so it's been around since the 1950s. It's used for diagnosing things like schizophrenia and major depression, you name it. Okay, and it's got a lot of questions that it's all yes, no. It's like 400 questions, but uh, it's like if you were, uh, it has validation uh, questions. So questions like, are you afraid of spiders? 
So Todd, I'll ask you, are you afraid of spiders? No. Okay. So if you're trying to answer in such a way, like to try to trick the test to thinking that you're schizophrenic, how do you answer that question? Are schizophrenics more afraid of spiders, less afraid of spiders? It's a pattern of answers, okay? Uh. But the theory is that if you can think like someone who is schizophrenic, then you're probably schizophrenic yourself. And so th there's no way to emulate it, if you will, that it's a, it's a way of thinking. It's a way of approaching the world. So to go all the way back around, um, I think that we are all, um, I don't want to say victims, we're all trapped in a particular time period that we're in, and that people think very differently in other cultures and at different times, and being able to tap into that. And so uh, the books that I write that, that don't sell, I'm not writing fictional time travel stories. What I do is I replicate entire days from the past. And so um, I've got a book from uh, 1972, which is the last, uh, December 7th, 1972, which is the last um, uh, Apollo mission when we went to the moon. And so it's everything from morning newspapers, all the magazines that were there that day, all the television that was on that day. And then I've written another one on 1960, uh, February 9th, 1964, which is when the Beatles were on um, that Sullivan show. Um, and then the one I'm working on now is on uh, December 1st, 1955, which is when um, Rosa Parks refused to move to the back of the bus. But December 7th, 1941, depression, um, uh, Wall Street crash, all those kinds of things. And so it's a way of trying to understand the way people in that time understood their world. And um, if I give you one more example, I watched a movie um, over this past weekend called uh, Great Freedom Number no. 7. You can find it on YouTube. It's a movie that was made in Nazi Germany in 1944 in color with all their biggest stars. There's, it wasn't shown in Germany until 1946, though. Goebbels refused to show it. There's no Nazi propaganda, there's no swastikas, there's nothing like that in it. But what it gives you is an insight into a familiar but entirely different world. And so it gets into the quote of that, uh, you know, the past is a foreign country and trying to understand it. And so I think it's the, when you get into the paradoxes of things like time travel, Yeah, it's not that we change the past, Time travel is really about changing the present. That's what people want to do. But I think one of the things is that it really changes you. And the other thing is, I think if you want to go forward, you have to go back. That's another one of the paradoxes of it. So, yeah. So maybe the present is like the middle of a space-time popsicle stick, and it's getting I don't influenced. even know if it's that. And that's the thing is that because as you sit here today, too, it's the influences of the past, present, and future are all taking place in you simultaneous, simultaneously. And so it's this, it's this issue that physicists talk about too, the whole idea of simultaneity. If there is such a thing where there's one moment in the entire universe, and I think that's what uh, we think of as the present, but to go back to the original Einstein quote, uh, physicists know that there really is no difference between the past, present, and future. And maybe our language complicates our perception of this, like in the movie 100%. Arrival. I don't know if you've ever seen that. 
What I'm, the movie Arrival? That is the movie on retro causality. That's the that's that's the best movie on that. Yeah, I, w- I would encourage people to see that. Listening to this, if you haven't, yeah. And yeah. you know, the, like, in, you've talked about the superior wharf hypothesis, where civilizations that maybe didn't have the kind of language for yeah. different time periods. Ex- perhaps experience time differently or experience. Right. The that's that's what Benjamin Worf believed in the 1930s. He was studying the Hopi Indians and they don't have terms for past and pro- past and future. And so he said that they were um, incapable of thinking about that. And so he, he developed what's called the linguistic relativity hypothesis, which is a fancy way of saying that words that we have are, are, are concepts that we are valuable in our culture, have a lot of words for them and things that aren't. So what I do in my cognitive class is I go through the entire class and have everybody give a euphemism for money because I can't do like sex parts because I'm sure they could do 30 different terms for each of those too. But everybody can come up with a unique term about money, bread, you know, dead presidents, whatever it is, because that's important in our culture. But uh, and it's it goes back to the whole Inuit idea that there's they have however many different terms for different types of snow. So there's snow that's good for making igloos. There's some snow that's good for packing or whatever it is. And so, um, yeah. And so we're really bound by these ways of thinking, by our culture. That's why one of the reasons I'm happy I teach at a liberal arts college. I'm sure that you're happy that you have a liberal arts education instead of a business education, for heaven's sakes. <laughs> um, what a, I, and I always tell my students, too. Um, you know, the, the the mistakes that you make out of love, that's the reason to make mistakes. Doing it for True. money or because it's what you think your parents want or anything else, you can always justify. Um, you're, you're making the right choice if you're making it out of love or because you think you're helping people. And I, I think that, you know, that's a good place to take this because people really struggle with decisions. People struggle with seeming mistakes. Did I make the wrong decision? Um, and I think this could be applied in the immediate uh, future when we just have these like little inconveniences. If you just step back for a moment and take into account the future, you might have a different feeling about it. And it might just create a different type of attitude towards your life and a different relationship between you and problems. So much of what we even consider to be a problem has to do with what we tell ourselves about the problem. I've experimented experimented with this in just very simple ways, like getting delayed on the road. I just simply asked myself, could this have any meaning in the future? Uh-huh. And sure enough, one time when I did that, I was delayed or I took a wrong exit heading into Chicago and I was delayed an hour going to the restaurant that I was going to. But when I arrived, a friend that, uh, that I met randomly there arrived at the same time who I would have never saw or never caught up with if I didn't make my mistake. Right. So there are just little things like that that people may notice. And anytime I do this, I find that uh, there's a certain kind of openness that comes to me and a certain freedom and receptivity to life, which, you know, leads me to another point that you, you mentioned something about theta waves. Uh, sure. In the book. Could you tell us what that is? Um, sure. As, as best you can. There's uh, essentially four different brain waves that occur. They made a documentary called Lucky which is about people, because usually what you hear about is people who win the lottery, like, well, they blow half of it on, um, 
you know, prostitutes and drugs, and then they waste the other half, you know. Um, but this looked at people who basically didn't have bad outcomes from it. And so this was a guy who, um, I can't remember his name, but it's in the book, but what he, he was a, a PhD in math and theta waves are essentially when you're daydreaming. So like there's something called road hypnosis, like where you're driving your car and then you're like, oh my God, 20 minutes have passed and I didn't realize what was happening. Yeah. But it's that kind of daydreaming. A lot of times it happens in the shower. If you're a runner, a lot of times it happens when you're running. If you're not listening to music, you just open yourself up to this um essentially to daydreaming to that sort of thing. So anyway, um, he, he trained himself to put himself uh, where he could daydream like that. And he just wrote down numbers as they came to him. And he started playing them every day. Two and a half years later, he hit 50 million. And he, he, he just liked to fantasize about what it was going to be like to win the lottery. I'm not advocating winning the lottery because I don't think money makes a difference in anybody's life, um, except negatively, if that's the way they want it to be. But he knew what the numbers were going to be. He just didn't know when they would hit. And so he kept on playing them for two and a half years. So that ties back to what we were talking about before. He's not seeing some um, future. He's remembering something from the future. So he's remembering something that actually happens in the future. And his uh, memory is a little fuzzy, which is why he doesn't know exactly when to play. He doesn't know when it's going to hit, but he knows. I was yeah. smart to just play it continuously until it until it hits exactly. and that kind of theta wave state is a little different than like meditation. You are actually thinking there's a, there's a right. lot more cognition happening, but it's in this sort of a lot more intentional than yes. what you would find in meditation, but I'm a big fan of meditation too. So I'm not going to in any same, way. Same. That. Yeah. I, I try to meditate every day. And I think that what I like about meditation is I think it does also alter my perception of time. Because in a meditative state, there's, you feel less confined by locality in uh -huh. space and time. Maybe like it, we were saying before, the stubborn illusion of past, present, future has to do with the flow of thoughts. And, and maybe the, the thinker is another thought. So meditation gives us a lot of relief from those recurring themes and stories. Agreed. Yeah. Well, this has been excellent. I'm really excited about your, your future research and learning more about how that influenced this present conversation. Absolutely. Yeah. And I hope we can connect again and, and talk about that and, and have you share more with what uh, you're discovering on that front. But is there anything you'd like to share with the audience, uh, anyone who might be listening that's not familiar with your work so that they can find either your books or oh, your research? Yeah. It's, yeah. I, I have a lot of videos on YouTube, Okay, um, both on ex everything in psychology, um, but on retrocausality, on time travel, on all those kinds of things. So yeah, believe it or not, yeah, I don't put the time travel stuff on my resume. Uh, I just put the, the, the books that I write on writing. That's, that's what goes on there. But okay. yeah. no, this well, has been a, a lot of fun for me too, Todd. I, appreciate I, I really appreciate your time and I applaud the courage that you have to just pursue what, um, what's out there, you know, follow, follow the trail of truth. So Thank you. there's nothing else that I can do. This is what I'm intended to do. So. All right. Thank you so much. And we wish you all the best.
Thank you. The school year. Thank you, Dr. Hatala.